Hello and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, poet and playwright, Mark Antony Rossi. In this, our second year, we continue to explore the meaning of being an artist in an ever-changing digital world. Now, without further ado, here is your host. Hi, folks, and welcome back to Strength to be Human. This is your host, Mark Anthony Rossi, poet, playwright, host of this show. Now, we're going on to the last of the uh, series of uh, Toying with Tangents, Fantasy, and Writing. This will be episode 149, Fantasy and Writing. All right, so what I'm done here is, of course, we're going to talk about, just like before, we talked about um, horror and science fiction and writing, some of the bigger thought genres in the, in the, in the, the novelization of writing. Uh, we're going on to fantasy now. And just like before, I'm just going to pick up a, a, a few of these uh, authors to sort of give you a, a good illustrated example of what we mean by fantasy and the, and the different things that you can do and the places you can go with it. It doesn't mean that this particular show for an hour covers everything in fantasy. And especially the, these days now, it, it's actually branching off in, in many different directions as well. Even though it's still under the, 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 the genre of fantasy, there's actually different types now. You got some folks now that they believe that there's a gay fantasy and then they believe there's a paranormal fantasy and then, and then there's a romantic fantasy. So there's a lot of like sub-genres or even sub-sub-genres to this as people have uh, broken off into different groups and they have different tastes and, and different niches. And sometimes people are writing for those and if that's the, the area of expertise they feel they're best in, well, then that's what will do it. But what is fantasy? Okay, and fantasy basically in writing is... And I find it more more so on Earth than it is in other places. Oftentimes, it's about developing a new a new culture, a new world, a new language, a new species. And it's usually on Earth itself. It's not usually far away because it's really hard, I think, as a fantasy writer to say uh, this is a fantasy novel, but it's on you know planet uh, you know Zeon because you're automatically going to get called you know science fiction writer. And we'll talk about that on the third author in this show, Ursula uh, K. Le Guin, because she actually did that and said, I don't believe it's a science fiction novel. I, I think it's a fantasy novel. <laughs> so she kind of resisted the whole the whole label of it. Well, we'll talk about that. It's pretty, it's pretty interesting on her take on it. But ultimately, that's what it is. It doesn't really involve science per se. Maybe it'll be uh, the spiritual sciences or, or mysticism or wizardry or something like that, you know, like with Harry Potter, uh, which is also a, a, a series of, of fantasy, the more, more the more modern ones that, that have actually come out. But that's not actually going to be part of this show. If I wanted to do something with Harry Potter, being how extensive the books are and even and how popular the movies became, I would, it would need a show by itself, really. So we're not actually going to talk about that, you know, formally on the show. But that's really what fantasy is. You're taking another world, another culture, uh, another race of beings and doing things with them that are interesting. Of course, there's always certain relations to humans in one fashion or another. And in some cases, um, in in the case of all three of these authors we're going to talk about, we're going to first talk about Tolkien, then we'll talk about C.S. Lewis, and then we'll talk about Ursula Le Guin. They all had humans in these things as well as other creatures. So there's a little bit of a mix of everything. A whole United Nations of, of, of living and breathing creatures. But uh, humans are actually part of it as well. So it's sort of one of, of many. All right, let's, uh, let's delve into it. I, I always found, and maybe folks are going to disagree or maybe they just don't find what I found. But I've always found compared to horror... And compared to science fiction, fantasy always, I, I always thought it gave you more room for the development of character. Because, you know, I mean, if you think about it, oftentimes in science fiction and in horror, it's really about servicing the plot or the monster or the gimmick or whatever it is. And oftentimes you don't care about the character, the background, because they're going to be eaten by the monster soon anyway. You know, so 
fantasy is a lot different though because fantasy can also be more I mean I know Star Wars broke the mold by having more of a journey but still fantasy is mostly about some big journey into learning things you're learning about a whole other world or its language or its politics or its invasion or its war or its military or the background of this person doing this or this creature doing that it just has more room for the character development I feel Unlike both science fiction and horror, I think it's the harder type of novel to write because you do have to really keep track of that. And, and people expect that in fantasy more. They don't really care about the astronaut with the laser beam that's blowing up the planet. Where did he come from? How, how did his mother train him? What ethics did he get from his father? Nobody cares. <laughs> they care more about that in fantasy. So you, you'll find that is more prevalent in that. And it makes it a, not only a much more interesting uh, genre, I think, than uh, science fiction and horror. And I'm not putting them down when I'm saying that. I just think that it's more interesting that way. It also makes it a lot more complex, uh, a lot more character-driven rather than plot-driven. And also, in, in many instances, closer to the, the humanity that we know about, regardless of how alien it might sound or, or how alien they're trying to make it. You see more of humanity in it than you do in, in science fiction and, and, and horror. Because those can be strictly about robots and monsters and space travel and, you know, military war and laser beams flying everywhere. It's not necessarily a whole lot of humanity there. But in fantasies, you, you find that's the case. And you find that in many instances, the writers themselves have had some interesting stories and some backgrounds and gone through some some heck of a, of a tales in their own life that seem to have brought that into their fantasy novels. So let's go with the first one, J.R.R. R. Tolkien, one of the first writers that I've ever read in my life when I was growing up, way before all the big you know, hoopla about the movies and you know, people starting to get reintroduced to them again, which I'm glad, don't get me wrong, but I remember you know, uh, reading when I was a kid, The Hobbit, and I remember... Uh, the, the Hobbit little cartoons coming out. And, and I remember how the library would bring it out. But the funny thing is back then when people talked about The Hobbit and they talked about Tolkien, they didn't really talk about the, the adultness uh, 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 of, the, of the novels later on with The Lord of the Rings. It was, seemed like more of a kid thing. You know? Running around, got a ring on, gets invisible, fights a dragon, goes a different, you know, all of that. It's more of a kid thing. It seemed like more of a kid tale. Even though... It's not hard after you read the three books of the Lord of the Rings to go back to The Hobbit and say, you know, I see the adult things, I see this, I see that. It's just that in many instances that trilogy was a sequel. <laughs> the whole trilogy was a sequel to The Hobbit. And they, they really help each other. But The Hobbit, ironically, as much as it's a fantasy novel and, it, and does goes greatly in, into, you know... Um, the Hobbit and who they are and, you know, how they're peaceful creatures and they're always kind of curious, kind of like cats, you know, with big feet. <laughs> and and, and this, this one Hobbit loves to travel, which most creatures didn't do back in those days. And it, had, it found the ring and, and how it was using that to stay invisible and go around. Uh, I think realizing later on that it was extending its life because uh, that was the one... That was the one power of the ring on its dark side of things. And we learned that later on in Lord of the Rings. And it, it definitely gets uh, put together really clearly in the movies. Is that it focuses on your one real real vanity. The one real vanity you have. It, 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 it amplifies it to, to, to no end. So you could pick it up and you're a greedy person. Now you're a mega greedy person. Or, you know, if you're like, uh, if you're like Bilbo from The Hobbit. Well, you're somebody that you want to live longer, longer than a hobbit normally lives because it'll give you more time to explore, write your books, do things. So the ring extended his life a lot longer than, than hobbits normally live. Nobody realized that what was going on with him. For others, you know, it's different. I mean, for if you think about uh, uh, Frodo, well... What did the ring do to him? It, it, it took his vanity that only he can now save the world and nobody else can do anything. And, and that almost caused him to kill his friends and, and, and literally, you know, um, give the ring back uh, to, to, to the evil uh, Sauron, you know? I mean, and this is somebody who's a really a moral character, but in the end, that was his vanity that he didn't think he could do wrong. He, only he can carry it. So his vanity was vanity. <laughs> 
you know, or arrogance, no matter where you want, might want to put that. Unfortunately, that's what grew on him, and that's what it, that's what it, it amplified. It, it took that in him, that that maybe that overconfidence he had, and it made it into something, uh, you know, horrible and evil. And that was one of the best characters in, in 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 that whole in that whole world there, in terms of something moral and trying to do the right thing and, and trying to go by his friends and and do whatever he can. Yep. So, J.I.R. Token. Who is this guy? Well, he's a unique guy. He's a, a British guy. Goes to World War One. Suffers unbelievable torture, mayhem, murder, destruction, the death of everybody that he knew around him dead. I don't know. I saw a war, a movie about World War One, not too recently, and I still did. They didn't even do enough to even cover what the hell happened there. I mean, I really wish they did a real movie that that showed all that. Because if you read about World War One, in many instances, it, it made World War Two battles look easy. What they had to do over there, because remember, it's it's simpler. It's similar to a civil war battle where literally tens of thousands of people will die in the same day. But now you amplify that. With machine guns, which they didn't really have in the Civil War. They had that old-fashioned Gatling gun. You could do only so much with it. But they had actual machine guns. Tanks. They could shoot all these missiles at you. And then, of course, chemical warfares, which later on was banned. All of this stuff was being used. So, it was not unusual for, you know, 50, 60, 70,000 people to be dead in, in, in the span of a day or two. I know in Somme... One of the great battles over there, so many soldiers had died and bled onto the ground that the ground had was full of iron for months after the war had ended. And, and plants couldn't even grow because they had so much iron from all the blood that's being spilt. Imagine how much human blood on the ground that even the plants don't want to grow. I mean, that's, that's, that's the reality of that. And this is where this man came from. That horror. Later on in his life, when he did interviews, and, and I'm not saying this to judge him or, or, or to criticize him. It's just the way it is. But he refused to acknowledge publicly in any interview that the Lord of the Rings had anything to do with his war experiences or, or the Lord of the Rings or anything else. He said that was just poppycock, hogwash, whatever fun British term they like to use. Even though, I don't know if he was a state of denial or maybe he just couldn't come to terms with that. But unfortunately, that was the truth. Had everything to do with that. The One Ring, the War One One, the War the End, all wars, the the brotherhood, the friendship, the, the fellowship, all of they had. That's what those men had to try to do the best they can to be able to survive through that. And sometimes that even wasn't enough. Remember, he came back to a um to a village where everybody was gone. I remember hearing about this when I lived in Germany. And the lady would tell me, she goes, yeah, all the men were gone. So after the war was over with, we had to import men into the town to not only get work done, but also to eventually be suitors so, so we could marry. Because there was no women. There was no old women there left and no men. Everybody was dead. Old men down. All dead. Entire villages gone from the war. And that's what he had to face too in World War One. Go back home. But in his particular case, it wasn't just a bunch of males that were all gone. These were all the people that he knew, that he went to war with. Every single one of them. People he grew up with, people he played with, people he fought with, and, and people who died. And he didn't. So it's a lot to be able to handle as one human being. Remember, therapy and things like that wasn't all that popular back then. It's not hard to say, without trying to be some kind of pop psychologist on the show, that his writing... His creation of the world of Middle-earth, the languages of Elvish. I mean, this guy went that far into this to create a whole other language. It had to be his own way of uh, dealing with what he had to deal with, his own sort of therapy. He admitted in his letters, which I, I read, uh, that were published by his son, Christopher, that um, he dealt with problems on the war. The post-stress, what they used to call shell shock how even related sometimes to some of his writing. So it, he knew, and that's what it was about. But that's what makes it so extra special, is that more so than most other 
and don't get me wrong, C.S. Lewis does a great job with Chronicles of Narnia on this subject too, but I feel the depth is far deeper in Lord of the Rings than it is in, in Chronicles of Narnia in terms of the fellowship of everyone involved, all of them trying to work together. Remember, if you remember from the book, if you don't remember, maybe you just read the, and checked out the movie, not everybody on their journey are even friends, okay? The elves don't trust the dwarfs. The dwarfs don't trust the elves. Everybody's looking at the humans like they're a bunch of jerks to try and take over everything, you know? They're all, all at each other's throat in one instance or another. And then they're, they're led by a guy that don't even want to be a king. He's ran away to the forest and just does some vigilante justice here stuff now and then. And he's in love with an elf. Great. <laughs> so, imagine to get a crew like that together. Nobody really likes each other. Nobody really trusts each other. In many instances in the book, it makes it pretty clear. The movie doesn't do it as much. But, you know, they're, they're practically racist towards each other. Definitely filled with all kinds of weird prejudices. But the battle and the job ahead and the mission that was necessary to save Middle-earth eventually does bring them together. Of course, you know, they lose a number along the way. But nevertheless, it still does. And they become a solid unit. And the friendship emerges and then later on a love like brothers amongst them all. Sometimes there's some consequences that are not always the best. But nevertheless, you get to feel all of that, not only in the movie, but in the book. They did a very good job on, on doing that. And that's really what that whole fantasy series is about. You get to explore good and evil, but not in such a black and white way, not in such a comic book way. There's nothing comic book about, you know, the conversion of, of forests into fuel for, for a military machine or the economical message behind that. Uh, different races trying to get together rather than being divided by evil people who then can use them for their own purposes. A ring that should never have been existed in the first place, controlling other rings on other people that thought they were going to have power, and now they find they're the slaves to another. To another. And, that, and that's really how that sort of thing works. And then, of course, the unusual thing is Tolkien, he decides to call The Hobbit The Hobbit. Because I don't know if he even had plans for another book. I'm told from what I read about what people had to say was is that it was only later when the public started accepting The Hobbit and that he started making a few dollars that the publisher's like, can you do something else? And that's when he came about with, okay, I'm going to do this whole rest of the world, which I've come up with, but now i got to write the books. And that's what he did. But he titled The Hobbit The Hobbit. It was named after that little, that little uh, hobbit. Nothing unusual about that. Where you'll note on the deeper sequels to all of this, Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Rings, Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. Those are the three books, just like the three movies. It's a much more darker situation. If you think about it, who is the Lord of the Rings? The Lord of the Rings is the evil character. That's what the whole series is named after. It, it's unusual that he didn't name it after anything wonderful. Maybe the subchapters are all interesting because if you think about it, Fellowship of the Ring is all of them getting together to go make on the quest to go get that ring back. Second book, The Two Towers. You could think about it as the two towers of the one that Sauron has and the one that the uh, the other wizard that became uh, um, evil uh, who had to fight uh, Gandalf, the other wizard. That could be their tower. Or you could just look at the metaphor as the two towers are really the two hobbits that are, are stringing along trying to help out and trying to get involved in things when that really not been given the mission only really Frodo is but they're still trying to help the two hobbits you could they could be the two towers that could be a metaphor it could be a little jest could be a little inside joke it's possible you know or return of the king it's really just about you know the that red ranger Aragon now actually taking on what he's supposed to have been all along the rightful heir Versus some, some, uh, some dork that uh, got put over there uh, that uh, really can't really run that city at all because there was no other heirs and he didn't want to step in, so somebody else took in the power vacuum. Don't know what they're doing anyway. People die because of bad leadership. Really wasn't that corrupt if you think about it. Just bad because they don't know what the hell they're doing. They just like the power, but 
They don't know how to actually do anything to stop the bad from happening. I always thought that was curious why he named it after something negative and, and, and ultimately evil. So I don't know if he was just trying to balance the Hobbit from the Hobbit and the Hobbit world versus the Lord of the Rings where it's a much darker situation. You know, the whole world is in, in, in turmoil. All kinds of different forces, good and bad, are literally putting themselves together in wars that was never been fought before. Never though some of these forces had never even fought together before, both evil and good. It forced everybody to take a side and, and to do whatever they had to do. So it's really incredible that way. But what I like about it the most is Tolkien did a very good job of keeping the human spirit up, keeping us an understanding about friendship and faith, how they matter in the world, how they keep you sane, how they can get you through trying, trying times. But he also kept it that he didn't make the evil to be some kind of comic book, some kind of one-dimensional character, some kind of goofy thing like Batman and his villains. Nothing like that. The evil in, in, in Tolkien's book is real. It's not playing around. And it's not hard to even get seduced or convinced over there. It really isn't. Unfortunately. You'll, you'll, you'll learn that when you read the books. That you know sometimes even sometimes the good were almost seduced over there. And, and, and had to deal with these consequences. And because of so much, so much power that can be given. Even though it's a lie. Because the power is only temporary. In the end you're going to be another slave like everybody else. So the one guy with the one ring. So it's all trick. That's what evil does. It lies to you. Don't be surprised. But there's no lie about people having to sacrifice themselves on mountains, with swords, with things they've never did before, away from their people, away from their village, away from their, their way of life to save a whole world. And you're like three foot tall and you need to eat like, you know, hamburgers every two hours. Because I think they had like 10 meals a day or something. <laughs> kind of like that part. Of it. I always thought that was funny. That's what good does. That's that's what it can do. And that's why ultimately it'll be stronger in the end than evil. If it does its job. Unlike in our world today where unfortunately oftentimes good is just weak because it doesn't want to do anything else other than I'm good. That's that was the problem with Frodo in that in that whole story there at the end. He's so interested in being good and so recognizing his own good that that's what the ring was able to use and use that to blind him where he became bad because it became a blind spot good's like anything else it's a muscle if you don't use it on a regular basis well you get flabby and the next thing you know you get weak then guess what the bad comes over because it's all ready to go it's all muscled up and strong token very interesting fellow part of a a, a group called the inklings they were a bunch of writers that sat around at oxford and, and talked about Oftentimes religion, uh, it's it's well known that Tolkien was a very devout uh, Catholic and he took his, uh, his uh, Catholic Christianity very seriously. It's not as evident in the books. I mean, you'll see a few things here and there, but it's just not as evident. I, I didn't, for whatever reason, he didn't imbue his, uh, his faith in those books, which would be the opposite of C.S. Lewis, which we're about to talk about. Uh, but uh, his faith... And those books were probably the two things that kept that man from, from going insane. And, and that kept that man on some kind of reasonable path of having a, a, a reasonably uh, decent and happy life under some horrible, horrible circumstances. Uh, he's really somebody to be admired, not only as a writer, but as a human being. And certainly as a military veteran. I definitely uh, salute you there, Sir Token. Next, C.S. Lewis. A completely different character, doing completely different work. He's also done fa science fiction, and he also did a lot of nonfiction books about theology and religion. But he's mostly known for the fantasy series of uh, seven books, uh, Chronicles of Narnia. And we'll talk about that. First, let's talk about him. He's terribly interesting as well, even though, and your people are going to be really surprised by this, even though he's known as a British writer, C.S. <laughs> Lewis was not British. He, he was Irish. He was born in Belfast. He was an Irish guy to the end of, to the end of his life. Uh, he thought it was very unusual that people talked different in, in, in England when he went to go to school there. He thought it was very unusual. And he also thought it was very unusual that 
English people wasn't really interested in Ireland and they wasn't interested in uh, Irish Celtic heritage or anything that was interesting about Ireland, they didn't even care. They didn't even care about the Irish writers because they all were British. It wasn't a big thing to them. You know, it never really, uh, I don't think he really understood for a while there that that whole divide with uh, Ireland being under British control and then the whole eventual civil war with, uh, with Catholics and Protestants. You know that that had a uh, that really had a, a, a sort of a shading on on, on the British folks, and uh, it probably wasn't their most popular subject, Ireland, unless it came up in politics. Maybe other than that, I don't I don't think it really came up in arts. And he always thought that was unusual, and I, I, he never made him comfortable about that. He made sure that although, you know, he he kept on to his own heritage. He studied all the all the Irish writers as well as the British ones, and he made sure that um, he never backed down from being who he was. Which was which was the Irishman in England. Now, C.S. Lewis had a, a, a much much different life than than Tolkien. Tolkien had a, a, your average middle class life with two parents. Nothing unusual about that. He went to war to do his job for his country and came back a different person. C.S. Lewis, on the other hand, had a mother who died of cancer. His father was a, a, a well-to-do lawyer, and like lots of people back then, he just sent him to boarding school. I don't know what the heck they did back there. I read so much of this uh, so many times, I can't even put my mind around this being done. What, only only people who can raise children are women? You can't do anything? Why would you not want to be around your own son? Folks, I'm not a sexist, but I got two boys. And I, I tell you right now, uh, I would probably have a, a better bond with them than I would if I had two daughters because there's so much that they do that reminds me of myself. There's so much I want to learn about what they do when I find out in sports or in schools is to make a comparison. That's what men do. We make those kind of comparisons. We find it funny. We chuckle. You know, and other times we don't chuckle when they do something crazy. You know, even if we did it, then we're not chuckling anymore. But... It's just a special type of bond because we're in that same gender and we just remember all of the all the craziness and the troublemaking and the you know, and just the growing up part. And why would someone would not be a one around that and they just want to send them to a boarding school? It's unbelievable. He, he was a distant man. Um, they said he was a bit of a a, a bore and uh, definitely somebody that C.S. Lewis never really did have any kind of formal decent relationship with. He didn't seem to have a big effect upon him other than the fact that he became more of a rebel, rebel when he got into his teenage years after boarding school. He wound up putting down um, religion and becoming more of an atheist and getting more involved in mythicism and mythology. He was really big in Greek mythology and all of that until later on in his life when he met Tolkien, who, believe it or not, helped him convince him to get back to, to his Christian roots. And I guess... Tolkien felt more uh, in the Protestant range of things than he did the Catholic range, and he wound up joining the Church of England, which is more Protestant than it would be Catholic. It broke off from Catholicism after, you know, Henry VIII. But um, they remained good friends uh, throughout their lives, and um, his conversion was different than most because he took it much more seriously. So after he did a series of uh, a space trilogy, which was wonderful and unique, by the way, um, he went on to his, which considered his masterwork and the work that he's most famous for, Chronicles of Narnia. One of the things that C.S. Lewis had, had really kept to his entire life was the fact that he loved animals and he loved the idea that maybe animals could talk. Some some reason, he was fascinated with that entire concept his whole life. And, and in that book series, all the animals, for the most part, they were able to talk. And he liked that. I think that was just a big part of what he wanted to do with that. Now, unlike uh, Tolkien's uh, fantasy series, uh, Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit, you read it as it is. Yeah, you got some metaphors here and there about the fellowship and faith and, you know, and, and friendship and, and loyalty and honor, all those things. Sure, they're all there. But other than that, that's it. There's not a real great depth to it. I mean, you feel the emotion behind that, and that's really important And how uh, Tolkien is able to do that because I'm sure he does everything he can to imbue that in there. That's just really what he felt. But C.S. Lewis has a, an entirely different take on everything because his books, especially you'll notice this in, in the Chronicle of Narnia, they have a multiple level to them. You could read those books as a child, and you won't get the same thing out of them if you read them as an adult. They have different levels to them. You could read them in different ways. It's amazing how he was able to do that. But 
not to burst anybody's bubble. It is a, a genuine fantasy series, but the the deepness or the depth to that particular fantasy is a Christian message. That that's pretty much what it is about conquering prejudice and and overcoming hate. Hate, uh, making sure you're not uh, conspiring with um with a devil-like creature that will just take your soul and and steal whatever you have for its own for its own amusement and for its own power. And the consequences of doing these sort of things. Aslan, the tiger that, yeah, well, excuse me, the tiger, the lion that talks to everyone, that's a Christ figure. It's not a coincidence that it, it died and it came back to life. It gave itself up to be killed because it didn't want one of the humans to be killed for, for committing a sin. That would have been a, a death sentence. So it took its place, just like the Christ figure in Christianity. It's not a coincidence. That's really a lot of what that story was about. You could take it on the surface level of a kid's story and have fun with it because it does have a lot of good ethics and morals to it regardless of whether you're an adherent to Christianity or even care about that message. You could still do that. Or you could look at it as a Christian and go, wow, this is something that I can share with my children. I don't have to worry about any weird black magic strange things going on there. Because, you know, you got some fantasy series now, they wrote that that are very occultic. Some people are not comfortable with that. Oh, it's just a book. Well, maybe some people might not feel it's a book. There's been a, a lot of talk about it with Harry Potter, even though I don't feel that way. And I'm somebody that, that takes Christianity seriously. But I've read Harry Potter, and i never seen anything to be concerned about. I saw the message uh, of goodness, and I saw the message of faith. I saw the message of sticking to your guns, about taking care of your friends, about trying to conquer evil, and do your best to understand what it is so that you don't become like it. And so you have a bunch of people running around with brooms and talking some uh, some crazy witch stuff and everything. And sure, there's an, an occultic edge to it. It's necessary to be a fantasy story. But other than that, I didn't see anything of to it. I don't see how it's going to hurt me or hurt my children or anything else. So I got no problem sharing that. Like I said, one day we'll have a, a whole whole show about that. But chronicles of the nordia is an amazing uh, amazing uh fantasy series i mean seven books is a lot too boy i'll tell you and the on the really the interesting thing about that is sort of like the hobbit in the sense that you know if you think about it the hobbit is the first book of the lord of the rings series you can literally put them all together and in some sets i've actually seen them the hobbit and the three books of the rings. And then I've even seen someone do the Hobbit, three books of the rings, and the Cimmerillion, some uh, the old, old years of, of that that world, that Middle Earth. Now that was completed uh, by uh, by Christopher Tolkien, his son, after he had died. And that came out, I think, in the early '80s or something. I remember when that came out. Um, you could do the same thing with his books if you only read the first book, okay? The Lion, the Witch, the Wardrobe. If you only read that and never read any other books, you'd be good to go and that was it. You don't have to go any further if you don't want to. It, it, it wraps up nicely. Yeah, is it nice to find out more tales about what's going on, this, that, and whatever? Yeah, sure. But in the end, that was it. That's all you really need to know. If they only came out with that one movie, you, you wouldn't need all the other ones. You really. They only did three of them in the movies anyway. But still, you wouldn't need them because it's that self-contained. Now, C.S. Lewis, a very, very interesting fellow, becomes a, a devout Christian Finishes up that series, and next thing you know, for the most part, what he does for the rest of his life is write a series of books about Christianity and theology. He writes them in such a manner that you could read them as a Catholic or any version of Protestantism and still have a, a good connection to what's going on. He's very good about making it across the board, so this way it's not focusing on one branch of things. Some people didn't like that still because they felt he was still more Protestant than he wasn't otherwise. Hey... Sorry that C.S. Lewis, but uh, you're not going to be able to make everyone happy. That's That, that hasn't changed in, in 3,000 years. It's <laughs> not going to change now, okay? So, oh well. But he definitely made the uh, the attempt. I see that. I've read a number of those books. They're pretty They're pretty interesting. His memoirs are pretty incredible well, as well about his life, about his uh, conversion to Christianity. Um they did a movie about a story of him that he met an American poet. He married her. She, they only were, I think they were only married for five years before she died of cancer. But that was a great love affair he had with someone that uh, they loved later in his life. Because um, for the longest time, he was a bachelor. And um, the books 
that he did about theology, they're nothing like the fantasy books in, in the sense that they're not about a fantasy world. They're about, you know, trying to understand this world through a Christian lens. And, and that's really what those are about. But the fantasy series, he's definitely up there as one of the great ones. I know as of, uh, I think, 2003, uh, I think that was the year, uh, they, they, they gave him a special poet section over in Westminster Abbey. If you've ever been there before, I've been there. A lot of important writers are at, have been given a spot there. Uh, even if they're not uh, necessarily British. I mean, you got Dante over there. you got all kinds of people. It's an incredible place, and it's good for him to have that. I saw Westminster Abbey from the inside, and I visited it in 1986. So that was, he got, you know, put in there well after I, I visited. I only got a chance to go to London one time. I spent three days there. It was wonderful. I wish I could have spent more time. I wound up spending more time in Paris and in Germany and even in Copenhagen. Nothing against London. I loved it. But um, I wish you could have saw that. I'm a big, big fan of him uh, my entire life. I read him so early in my life that when I told the teacher the book I was reading, they're like, are you sure you don't mean Sinclair Lewis? I'm like, no, I'm really not sure. I mean, even teachers didn't recognize him because for a long time, he was just considered on the on the border of of uh, creative writing and just more of a religious writer or a Christian writer, whatever they they like to kind of put you in some some kind of literary ghetto or something, you know. For a long time, he was in that quote ghetto, you know, until he finally broke out. And and then of course, I'm sure the movies helped, but the movies for C.S. Lewis were far different than the movies for Tolkien. They really helped the books for Tolkien, uh, even though he was still famous and, and did a, a wonderful job with those books in, in terms of selling them in the 70s. They were huge. Um, C.S. Lewis, I think he eventually rode the wave of, of the Christianity throughout the country and the world, and the books kind of went along with that and had a life of their own, so to speak. I'm surprised at how many people haven't read it or sometimes don't want to read it. It's just Christian, Mark. I don't really care. But I tell people, hey, open your mind. Check it out. There's multiple dimensions. You'll be surprised by what you'll find. Okay, and you're not going to automatically turn into a Christian. You're not going to get anything other than what you want to get out of that. But you'll find a lot of good lessons in it, and you'll find a lot of interesting writing. You'll find a lot of wonderful fantasy stuff going on over there. And he did it in his own style, in his own way. You're not going to see it any way else done this way. So I, I really, I really love that book and that book series, and I love the whole concept behind it, one way or the other. Definitely one of the great uh, authors uh, for fantasy, uh, C.S. Lewis. Clive Staple Lewis, Irish writer, lived in uh, England for a long time, became a professor there for over 20 years, taught, moved back to Ireland. Incredible. All right, last uh, uh, one in this particular show would be Ursula K. Le Guin, an American writer. Interesting in the sense that here is a woman writer that had an enormous impact on on all kinds of writers after her. A lot of the male, by the way, which is incredible. I mean, if you think about it, um, Shirley Jackson had a huge influence over uh, Stephen King. And as, as much as Edgar Allan Poe had an influence over Stephen King, but Ursula Le Guin was also somebody that mentioned her. Um, she uh, was the one I was mentioning to before that had a, a, a science fiction book. They everybody called it a science fiction book. It was about a book about a race of people that really had no gender on a planet. It's called The Left Hand of Darkness. Won her a bunch of big awards. Really a big introduction to her writing. Kind of started her off with that. But she never felt it was a science fiction thing. And even though it was one of the very few things that, quote, would have been even under science fiction, because she's mostly a fantasy writer, um, she always put that down. And not in a negative way that like, she didn't like science fiction. She just didn't think in her mind that it was science fiction. So I think the way she conceived it was a fantasy uh, like a uh, thing on another planet. But as we really know, and we talked about it before, and once you do that, you're kind of stuck on science fiction label, whether you like it or not. So that day, she never felt that she was, even though if you ever look over her biography or the, any writings about her, they're going to mention her as a science fiction writer and a fantasy writer, a woman's writer, a feminist writer, I don't know, a hundred different tags. It's kind of hard to win on one tag. You can't even insist on one tag, so you got to feel sorry for her. They're going to just, they're going to put whatever tag they went on you. Sometimes you got to live with that. Well, you know, when she was alive, she wasn't too happy with it, but still. I don't put it on her. I do, I'll call her fantasy writing because I think that's really what she was about, in my opinion. 
very famous for the Tales of the Earthsea. They actually made a, a, a TV show after that. I'm not sure how successful it was or how many people really into it. But if you're into fantasy, that's an important uh, tale. Many people feel that if you put it up against Middle Earth, that it was a, a, a deeper, superior tale than the Middle Earth was. And me, I don't think so. I think that unlike Tolkien, who was not a political writer on any front, on any part of your imagination, you could stretch your imagination as far and wide as you can. You can't even find any politics in the writing. You know, you just can't. But uh, Le Guin, on the other hand, is all over the place. That's really what drove her in many instances, the politics of gender, the politics of sexuality, the politics of race, politics of culture, the politics of being rich, the politics of being poor. Big, big politics. And Earthsea is no different that way. It's full of that. So it's an unusual judgment for somebody to make. I think it's superior to Middle Earth. Why? Because it's talking about some politics and this other guy chose not to do that? I don't think that there's something wrong with her doing that. That's great. Why not do that? It hasn't been done as much in, in fantasy. There's not really any real politics in, in, in Chronicles of Narnia either. Even if you, if you take what I'm saying seriously about the Christian message, that's not really a political message. That's more of a theological one. Theology and fantasy work very well. It works with the occult. I mean, why shouldn't it work with a, with a mainstream religion? But in her tales, <laughs> it's definitely everywhere. It's really what made her uh, stand out amongst many other writers. Not the fact that she wasn't a great writer herself and that she was always dedicated to what she had to do. Uh, she came from a, a pretty well-off background with a, with a, a beautiful home and, a, and, and a pretty much an idyllic childhood. Nothing unusual about her. Um, married for quite some time. And... All that she wanted to do was be the writer. And, of course, as you could probably imagine, you know, I mean, because I know Shirley Jackson faced the same thing as uh, Octavia Butler did. These are women that are in uh, fields that are mostly men. Been that way for, for more than 100 years when Jules Verne was out there, you know, going into that. So I'm sure it, it has to be, uh, if not intimidating, at least, you know, a real challenge to be able to do something that can stand out because, you know, in many instances, you're going to have some influence. Some guy is going to be somebody that you admire, even if they won't publicly admit it. Because there's not too many people before you other than Mary Shelley with Frankenstein and maybe a couple others. And most of them are not going to be fantasy, you know, writers like, you know, George Sand or George Eliot or, you know. And those are all women, by the way. It just took male names. So... I'm sure she had a, a, a real influence or, or, or somebody had to influence her. I mean, I, I, remember, I remember reading about her saying that, uh, you know, she, she was definitely uh, loving uh, Jules Verne, but was uh, somebody that also cared about Charles Dickens because, you know, Charles Dickens was more of a, a social writer. He's probably one of the few writers back then that you can pretty much say was quite political. Although Victor Hugo as well was, was super political. Although he was really trying to... Uh, make a dent in, in the French society and, and the backwards way he was going in its government and how harmful it was to, to people and, and fairness. Where I, I think uh, Darwin was just pretty much writing stories about social things, hoping that, you know, they have an impact and just spending the money on and doing the causes rather than preaching about them. So they had two different uh, real approaches to that. But it's very, it's very uh, obvious that uh, Ursula Le Guin is not only a female writer, not only a feminist writer, no doubt, uh, but also a social and a political writer. Even though she's in fantasy, she is talking about things that were not even talked about. I mean, you think about it, the left hand of darkness, no gender, and all the things that would come with that on a, on a whole on a whole different planet in 1969. <laughs> you know, I I mean, I think I think what Playboy was probably only out for even a couple of years, and and, and that was controversial. Which, to me, I never, never understood that because other than a couple of naked girls, there really wasn't any much, quote, porn in the magazine. It's actually pretty damn intellectual. Those interviews, they put them in a book one day. They're, they're valuable, the stuff you learned about it. I mean, I had to go to Playboy and, and go to the library to find the, the interview on Malcolm X, the interview on Jimmy Carter. I mean, there's a lot of wonderful interviews in there. Really in-depth stuff that nobody else was asking about writers and interesting thinkers. You're going to find it there in Playboy. I know. So this is what people need to realize sometimes is you got to go to places that, you know, 
people might put down or people might, I mean, hell, you have for himself one day will find out how much of an intellectual uh, giant he was in many ways, how excellent of a writer he was, how, how ahead of he, he was on his times on, on, on women's rights and gay rights uh, alone. I mean, we, we talk about some of these uh, these heroes of feminism as Gloria Steinem, but in, in, guess what? In a, in a strange, ironic way, Hugh Hefner was in his own way a type of feminist. I know it sounds crazy. I know it probably somebody's probably listening to the show right now passing out. What? But in the end, if, if feminism is supposed to be about... Uh, you know, a uh, freedom, and it's supposed to be about liberty, and it's supposed to be out uh, having jurisdiction over your own body. Well, I mean, what more jurisdiction than your own body is taking off your clothes and someone snapping a photograph and you, and you get a couple bucks to go to school or pay for an apartment or whatever? I don't know. I'm just, there you go. <laughs> that could also be feminist too. I mean, that, I, I can't really see why uh, it, it wouldn't be. So we got to keep that sort of thing in mind. Even the even she understood that, and she had a real chuckle about that. She, for someone uh, I felt that had such an uh, an older and, and more traditional upbringing, she had a much more advanced view of the of society than a lot of writers did, and, and really, I, I felt as similar to Octavia Butler in that way. She really, she really were able to see a lot more about even the kind of world that we have now. I think she saw it back even forty or fifty years ago. And, and wrote about it in, in many instances where um, where the idea of equality wasn't no longer controversial, you know, where equal pay is, is mandatory and standard. I know we're not there yet, but I know we're continuing to work to try to get there. And hopefully that will happen because I don't really see why it doesn't. It should be a, a pretty easy task. Two people do the same job, uh, you know, they should get paid the same. It just kind of makes common sense to me. Even though she was quite political, I found her to also be, in many instances, uh, very uh, theological. She never really claimed too much on, on, on that religious bent. But I always found her to have a real philosophical bent that sometimes even bordered on religion. One of her favorite quotes, and to me, it's up there with Nietzsche on, on most, one of the most important quotes to help you understand a great deal about the human condition. When you light a candle... You also cast a shadow. I've, I've carried this a quote in, in my mind for like forever. Since I was literally a teenager. I'm telling you. It's one of those few. It's up there with uh, Paul Tillage. Which I mentioned the last episode. Decision is a risk rooted in the courage of being free. It, uh, uh, and it's up there with the other Nishi one. Again a man who said he's an atheist. A man who said he's a nihilist. Yet he has some of the most important spiritual insight that you can have on anybody that's a religious believer. And Nishi warns us. You peer into the abyss. Enough. The abyss will peer into you. It's a much deeper understanding on the nature of evil and the nature of the human condition. The nature of, if you remember... The Heart of Darkness uh, novel by, by Robert Conrad. I'm sorry, Joseph Conrad in the Belgium jungle. And that's what that was based on. The evil that went through from Belgium and Africa and all they had done to, to colonize that and, and harm people just to get some, some minerals out there. And how in the end it made them the monsters they claimed that the Africans were. They were the friggin' monsters in the end. Well, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, he, he wanted to turn that into a screenplay in a movie called Apocalypse Now. And that's what that is. That colonel there could not handle the fact that he couldn't save his men from the harms of war. He could never seem to find how I can get an edge on these people so that I can reduce the conflict. How do I do something extra? What can I do? Next thing you know, he's Grabbing people and cutting their heads off and, and putting their skulls on pikes and stabbing people and drinking their blood and, and making a whole damn village of this stuff. Going from the loyal soldier who deeply cared for his men to a monster now. That That is an aberration, an uh, immoral creature. Somebody that this is what war has turned into because this is the side he went to. He was in the abyss too long. And it peered right back into him. 
It's the nature of evil. That's why it's not something to play with. That's why it's not something you dance with. Huh. Let's just have a little fun with evil for a moment. Now go back to good later. The longer you mess with it, the more it looks into you. And when it does, it'll make a connection. And when it makes that connection, it finds things that starts turning you around. You see that in Star Wars. You see that from the very time Anakin Skywalker is looking at that girl. Looking at that girl in lust. Loving his mother so much that he can't obey the vows of his monkhood as a Jedi Knight. No, I gotta go slaughter these people because they killed my mother. I know it might sound like a natural son reaction. And I could certainly relate. But his character should never have done that. Once he did that and murdered those people. Because that's what he did. You can't kill a, like a, a thousand people and say they all killed your mother. Maybe if you killed the one that killed your mother. Maybe you, you might have some kind of moral argument. But the other 999? Uh, no, you don't. <laughs> you call it whatever you want to call it in your mind. But you just crossed over. You're evil now. I took care of my mother's uh, enemies. Yeah, okay. That's what that does. And I think she understood that. So uh, those, I'm not a big quote master or, or quote meister. I mean, I, I, there's certain ones I, that I find so profound because they, they speak to certain things that I, I see out there that I have to remind myself about as well. Just because I know these things doesn't mean I don't need reminding myself because I do. Especially since, uh, you know, I could be a guy with a bad temper at times. So I have to always try to like do whatever I can to manage that. <laughs> And those kind of quotes are, are from, from thinkers, uh, from writers, from uh, people who have delved into philosophy to understand uh, how complex we can be and how oftentimes as writers we could plumb the depths of our soul to a certain extent to get certain things out and then we got to try to get ourselves back to where, where we belong in the, in, the, in, the, in the reality. Not to say that none of these writers didn't respect reality or lived in reality in fact these are some of these are considered some of the greatest writers of all time and some of the very best and the very top of fantasy people that didn't indulge in depression and didn't indulge in alcohol and drug use didn't indulge in adultery and, and all kinds of crazy drama i mean Tolkien dealt with that medically that's what he had to deal with but he had a normal life for the most part uh, C.S. Lewis actually did go to war and did see a lot, but it, it didn't seem to face him. He didn't seem to have any issue with it at all. In fact, he struggled more about uh, his uh, self-imposed atheism and, and later on his visuals conversion than he did anything about his war. And of course, Ursula Le Guin, I mean, the literally the perpetual student, perpetual writer, perpetual thinker. Always trying to push uh, some sort of envelope, always trying to get something new out there that she believed in. I mean... Uh, a quite a professive uh, a visionary uh, that really, really grasped onto things. In many instances, I always thought that Philip K. Dick was sort of like the opposite of her, although he did have serious mental in illnesses. And he, but in the end, to me, they're very similar writers in the sense that they're very political, and they wanted to really talk about the the, the human being and the individual, you know, in and amongst a, a culture or a planet or. You know, even a system of beliefs and, and, and where those can sometimes be used not for broadening everybody's view or, or, or expanding people's liberty, but rather they can be used to, to harm or to cut somebody out or curtail somebody. So all of these uh, fantasy novels, every one of them, have a strong message about how prejudice is stupid and how when people band together as teams... They get enormously amount of things complicated. Excuse me, accomplished. Even though it can be complicated, but yeah, they get enormous things comp accomplished. And I know we hear teamwork all the time. What's the new phrase now? Teamwork. Teamwork makes the dream work. I think that's the new frame they use now. It's kind of cute actually, but um, we hear it. We hear it so much that it becomes a cliche. We hear it so much that it's almost corny. We hear it. But guess what? You can call it the cliche you want. It's one of the fundamental truths. Of humanity every time we figure out how to team up we become that much better that much stronger that much less willing to even look at the dark side let alone actually follow it because when you team up 
on anything, you start putting aside that fear. Because remember, it's fear that talks to people that makes them prejudiced, that turns them into haters, that makes them into murderers, that turns an honorable colonel into literally a serial killer who has no problem doing it again. Now convinced he's doing good things for his men, he's doing something for the war, he doesn't see himself anything other than somebody that's doing the right thing. But he's already lost touch with reality like, I don't know, 999 bodies ago. Check that book out, Heart of Darkness, and check out that movie, Apocalypse Now. Francis Ford Coppola did an incredible job on it. And uh, everybody, uh, they want to give short shrift to it. They're like, it's just about Vietnam. And <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's said in that, sure. But, I mean, Heart of Darkness is said into the Belgian Congo, and all well, they did that in the 1800s, so come on. You don't need this thing to be said anywhere other than to understand that when you take something too far, what those consequences can be. And and that's really what that is. I, it's a masterful movie. As much as I like The Godfather and how incredible that was, I know I, I in many ways, I, I always felt that uh, Apocalypse Now was, was his greatest movie. And you can call it, if you want, especially Heart of Darkness, the type of a fantasy. But in the end, you know, it's really speaking to the you know, the good uh, angels of our nature and, and of course, the, the bad ones as well. But fantasy, folks, an incredible form of writing where you can actually speak to the human condition and still kind of get away with certain things and, and, and say certain things that maybe you couldn't do in nonfiction. There's no doubt about it. If Ursula Le Guin tried to write down in an essay form some of the stuff she did in these novels, <laughs> they would never have been published. They would have called her crazy. They would have called her a freak a pervert, a weirdo, a radical, a whatever you want. They would have called her all kinds of names. You put it into fantasy, the next thing you know, they're giving you awards. Calling her a writer. Calling her a thinker. Or, uh, or maybe casting off as, oh, you know, she's a feminist. They're going to do that. You know, that's how feminists are. <laughs> you know. But, hey. This is what fantasy does for writing. It, it brings out many of these elements and I know there's people right now as they speak that are actually working on their fantasy novel. And I'm really proud of them, what they're doing. And, and how important it is to go forward in the 21st century over here. Doing something new. Doing something interesting. Doing something that we can own. That we can call our own. Not think anything wrong with these classics. Because they're there. They're the foundation in many instances of some of the things that people do now. Don't get me wrong. But. We might love The Lord of the Rings. And we might love. Chronicle Nordia, and we might love Tales for Ursi, but if we're going to go more forward as we have new generations, as we have married and do other things, well, we need to have our own tales as well. And I can't wait for new people out there to put these new tales out there in the fantasy world so that we can have the next generation enjoying another series. All right, folks, God bless until then, and until our next episode, which I believe is, hold on, I have it. Yeah, no, I have it written down. It's not like I haven't had the stuff memorized, all right? Yeah, the next one we're going to be doing, uh, which will come out um, towards the end of the week here, will be uh, keeping the journal and jiving the memory. <laughs> I wanted to do living the memory, but I like jiving better. I, I think it's going to work out for that show. So we're going to do a, literally a whole show about journaling. I, I know. I'm going to make it interesting so you won't fall asleep, I promise. But... I know lots of people that do this, and it really is a part of what they do in their writing. So why don't we try to figure out what they're doing, see if maybe there's something we can do, even on a limited basis, even on a, you know, a periodic basis. You know, I know a couple of people that don't do journals every day, but at least a week they're throwing something in there. At least one week. They don't miss that at least, no matter what it is. Even if the whole week has been a total trash on Sunday night before they have a cigarette and a coffee or something on the catio. Let me jot something in this journal so they don't miss anything. It's a good ritual to have. We'll talk about that, and I think you're going to find it really fun and interesting. And that, in case you have noticed, I try to mix things up on the show so we're not doing all kinds of super serious things all the time. I try to, like, intersperse it with shows that are not, you know, not as heavy, not as dark, not as serious, not as involved. We need a little bit of all of this, so I try to do that the best I can. And that, that journal uh, show will definitely do it. All right, folks, God bless until next time. That was uh, Strength to be Human, uh, Toying with Tangents, Fantasy and Writing, Episode 149. Until next time.
Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by visiting our sponsors at www.strengthtobehuman.com or purchasing an ebook at www.somapublishing.com.